You're listening to Beyond the Sermon, the podcast of First Methodist Church in Collingswood, New Jersey. Our goal is not only to share our sermons, but to go beyond the sermon in conversation about what we're learning and what God is doing in our lives and in our community. This sermon comes from our 2022 sermon series, Digital Babylon, Developing Resilient Faith in Exile. You can find more information about our church at fumccollingswood.org. Thanks for listening. There, there's a famous quote in a movie that I'm sure many of you have seen at some point. A young girl grows up on a farm with her aunt and her uncle and the farmhands there. They live in black and white on that farm there in Kansas. And this young lady, Dorothy, she gets caught up in a tornado, a twister. And when she wakes up, she wakes up in technicolor. She looks around and she utters this famous line to her little canine friend. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Well, friends, this morning, I have to tell you that not only do we not live in Kansas, uh, I don't think we're living in Jerusalem anymore either. And I think it's time for us as a church to take a look around, to accept that things have changed and that the culture that we're living in, the culture we find ourselves here in the West, in America, here even in South Jersey, can no longer be called a Christian culture. We've moved into what they call a post-Christian culture, which is what I think we find ourselves in now. Western culture is post-Christian. Not in the sense that we've somehow moved beyond Christianity, but the culture's reacting against it. Western culture today wants the benefits of Christianity without the expectations. It wants a king, or it wants a kingdom without a king. It wants justice without a judge. It wants rules without an authority. And Christians now are a minority. If not in number, at least in voice and influence. The values of Western, of Western culture are no longer the values of the kingdom of God. And that's true, I don't care which side of the political aisle you sit on, it's true. So Christians today, in a way, are living here in the West as exiles. This is what David Kinnaman of the Barna Group and Mark Matlock wrote uh, in a book called Faith for Exiles. They call it digital Babylon that we find ourselves living in. And today, we're going to look at what it means to live as people of faith in exile in a culture that's no longer our home. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some areas that research has shown can strengthen our faith in a time of exile. And, and in these weeks, a lot of what I'm drawing on has come from, from these two authors, David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock, uh, but also a pastor by the name of, of David, nope, Mark Sayers, uh, who's a pastor down in Melbourne, Australia. So why do they call it Digital Babylon, that's probably the question on your mind right now. What, what, what is this digital Babylon? Well, to get there, 
I, I want to take a few minutes and look at the original Babylon, right? Babylon was that city all throughout Scripture that set against God. It's set up as the antithesis of Jerusalem, which was the city of God. So you've got Jerusalem over here, God's holy city, and you've got Babylon over on this side, which is set against God. And it goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10, where they wanted to make a name for themselves rather than a name for God. Later in the Old Testament, God warned his people that if they were not faithful, they were going to be taken from the land that God had promised them and sent into exile. This was the message of the prophets over and over and over again. If you don't turn away from the idols that you're worshiping in the place of God, God's going to take you and send you into exile. So the northern tribes of Israel were carried off by the Assyrians, and sometime later, the southern tribes of Judah were carried off by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. That's what we read about here this morning. And so I want to take a look at that book, of the book of Daniel, chapter 1, this passage that Will read so well for us. He did a great job with all those names. Um, But God had handed over Judah and King Jehoiakim and they were taken into exile. They were taken with some of the royal family, some of the nobles, the leaders of Jerusalem, the leaders of the people of Judah. And they took some of the things that were used in the temple worship there in Jerusalem and they carried them off to their temple in Babylon to worship their God with them. Nebuchadnezzar was taking the very best and the very brightest, the leaders of the people and the future leaders. And Daniel 1 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar instructed one of his officials, Ashpenaz, to groom and train some of the best of the best of those young men. And Daniel 1.4 describes them in this way. This is who Nebuchadnezzar was looking to help lead his empire. He was looking for men who were without any physical defect. They were handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. They were well-informed and quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. These were the very best that Jerusalem had to offer. And they were taken by the officials and they were taught the language of Babylon and they were taught the literature of Babylon, the stories, the philosophies, the thought process of the Babylonians, all those things that go into forming our worldview. And they were given food to eat each day from the king's very own table. You see, these young men weren't just being trained, they were being reprogrammed. They were being taught to speak and think and live like Babylonians. Daniel tells us that among these young men were himself, Daniel, but also Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, who we know better, right, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're the ones who later on in the book of Daniel stood up when all the other people were told to bow down to the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And because of it, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. But that's a story for another day. We don't have time to get into all of that one today. 
but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those were their Babylonian names. And Daniel was called Belteshazzar. You see, even their Jewish identities, their Jewish names were being taken from them and replaced with Babylonian ones. So you've got these young men who have been taken from their homeland, their families, their faith, their faith, and everything else they knew, and they're put into a completely new culture in a context that had no room for them to be who they used to be. And for three years, they were going to be given the very best that Babylon had to offer. The best teachers, the best food, the best of the best. And this was with the assumption that they would become Babylonians and serve the king of Babylon. And that's the portion of scripture that was read for us today. This is what was happening to the people of Judah when they were taken into exile in Babylon. They were the best and the brightest, taking them to turn them into Babylonians themselves. So if that's what Babylon was doing back in the day of Babylon, what about this digital Babylon I was just talking about? Where does that fit? How does that connect? Well, you see, in in digital Babylon, instead of the best Babylonian teachers and the best Babylonian food and all of the best of the best of the Babylonian, our screens have become our new disciple makers, our new formation things. Research tells us that uh, young adults between the ages of 18 and 30, and that's the demographic that the, the research was looking at, but it really, I think, applies to all of us. Young adults spend 22 times the amount of time absorbing content from a screen than they do taking in spiritual content in the course of a year. 22 times more from their screens than they do spiritual content. The average person in America touches their phone over 2,600 times a day. That includes typing, tapping, swiping, those kind of things. But to kind of narrow it down a little bit, they say the average American phone user unlocks their phone 80 times a day. So if you take out some time that you're, you're sleeping, which kids, I hope you're not on your phones while you're sleeping, but I realize that's probably naive at this point. Um, if you take out that time you're sleeping, that comes to unlocking your phone every 12 minutes all throughout the day. Recently, Pew Research determined that 46% Almost half of all U.S. teenagers say that they are never not online or that they're almost constantly online. 46% never not online. That's up from 24% in just 2015. Do you think that doesn't change the way we see and interact with the world? Of course it does. You see, humans were never created to live at the speed of technology. We can't keep up with the endless stream of posts and news and feeds. 
We can't do it. It gives us FOMO because we're afraid we're going to miss something if we don't stay connected to our screen, if we don't stay locked in on what's going on, we're going to miss out on something that's happening. But the other thing that all these technologies allow us to do is to mediate the way that we portray ourselves to one another. It used to be if you were gonna get to know someone, you'd actually have to sit down and get to know them, right? Face to face. But in Digital Babylon, we can choose to be almost anyone we want to be, and we can choose to limit our interactions with those who are like us, those who agree with us, those who think like us, those who look like us, those who live like us, whatever version of it it is that we want to portray to the rest of the world. And we have more ways than ever to connect with people than at any other point in human history. But people today are lonelier than they have ever been. So here are a few other realities about the culture of digital Babylon. One, there's a rejection of absolute truth in Western culture today. People today wanna talk about my truth and my reality rather than the truth or the reality as it exists. People wanna define what's true by how it makes us feel how we interpret those things through our own lenses, which means that it gives rise to to, uh, a culture that wants to hold up doubt and skepticism as virtues. People with convictions, especially if they're strong convictions, get labeled as fanatics or fundamentalists. We don't want to seem too certain of anything in the world today because what might seem certain to me, what might seem true to me, might not be true or certain for someone else. Which leads to number three, an idea called pluralism. Pluralism says that all paths, all philosophies, all religions are equally true. It doesn't matter what you believe necessarily as long as you believe something. And so in digital Babylon, happiness is held up as the highest goal that we can aim for. And the way to be happy is to look inside ourselves to decide who we truly are. We do that not by, do, we do that by not doing anything that doesn't feel good to us, doesn't make us feel good. If it feels bad to us, then it's not good. It can be rejected. See, Digital Babylon says that myself is at the very center of everything. It's at the very center of reality for me. And each person can decide what's right and what's best for themselves. Is it any wonder that anxiety and depression have skyrocketed in recent years? Just imagine for a minute trying to keep up with all of that, to to live in a reality where you are the only point of reference in your life. Now, I wanna go back to Daniel 1 and I wanna go a little bit further. Let's pick up in verse eight 
And I wanna see how these young people, Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah, how did they respond? So Daniel 1, verse eight says, but Daniel. And I love those, those short little words in scripture, but and then, uh, because, because they always signal that there, there's something going on there, there's something happening there. And so Daniel 1, verse eight says, but Daniel, and it changes everything. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food or wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to, divide, to defile himself in this way. Daniel resolved. He set in his heart that he didn't want to defile himself with the food and the wine from the king's table because all of that had been sacrificed to the gods of the Babylonians. And so the story goes on, and after some negotiation back and forth, the official agrees to let them try it for 10 days as a test to see. You see, Ashpenaz, that official, he was afraid that these young men, if they did what they wanted to do, what they were asking to do, they weren't going to look as good as all the other young men who were in this training program, who were eating the food that the Babylonian king had given to them. He was afraid that he was going to get in trouble if these men didn't fare as well as the other. But Daniel 1 tells us that at the end of those 10 days, these four men looked better than all the other young people that were being trained. You see, God had honored their devotion. He gave them wisdom and knowledge and Daniel the ability to interpret dreams. So when they were presented to King Nebuchadnezzar, the end of their training period, which was about three years long, he couldn't find anyone in the whole kingdom as good as these four young men. So how does that happen? How do these young people stand firm in the face of this kind of cultural coercion where everything they knew was being challenged and changed and taken away from them? What is different about them that causes them to be resilient when others around them capitulated to the culture? You see, we don't hear stories about all the young men that had been taken from Jerusalem to Babylon or that they responded in the same way. There was something different about these four young men. I think there are three things in particular that we can look at that show us something of the difference that Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael experienced. Ready? These are gonna be pretty quick. First, they recognized that the culture around them wasn't like Jerusalem. They knew they couldn't expect life to look the same as it did in Babylon as it did in Jerusalem. They could see that things were different there and they had to respond to this new reality. They recognized the culture around them. But two, they remembered their roots. Even as they recognized that the culture around them was different, they recognized or they remembered that they were called to be faithful, that they had been formed differently as part of the people of God. So even as they recognized the difference, they remembered their roots, which led them then 
to resolve to stand firm. Like we heard about Daniel, they resolved to stand firm. They made a choice of their will and they didn't just accept that the new things that were being set in front of them were good for them. They resolved in their hearts because they remembered who they were and what God had called them to be and because they recognized the culture that they lived in, the world that they found themselves in was no longer like their home in Jerusalem. And so I wonder, do our young people, the young people in our lives, here in our church, in our families, do they have this kind of resilient faith in the midst of what has become a foreign culture? Do we adults have this kind of resilient faith? And I think by and large the answer is no. Think about how many times you've heard a version of a story that says, oh yeah, I grew up in church, but I went off to college and I didn't get connected to a local church or the questions that were being asked, I couldn't answer with my little Sunday school answers. And far too many times, those people, those young adults, they end up falling out of church. They end up drifting off to something else. Sometimes they end up choosing to walk away from what they've been raised to believe. Maybe that's your story this morning, but you've come back. Maybe that's uh, something you've experienced in your own family and you're still praying for those people to come back. But do we have any hope that there can be anything different in the face of a culture that no longer looks like the culture that we're used to? And I believe there is, there's research that's been done by the Barna Group that I mentioned earlier with, with uh, David Kinneman. It's the preeminent Christian research group here in the States, and if you're unfamiliar with them, you can think of like Pew Research or Gallup Polls or anything like that. Uh, but this research shows that among young adults who have grown up in the church, they can be put into one of four different groups. Now, I want to take just, just a minute before we get to these groups, because I don't want anyone who's here who's over 40 sitting back and thinking, oh, well, this, this sermon series, this doesn't apply to me. This sermon series, this is, this is for the young people. This is, this is about those millennials that we hear about, right? But as we talk about the, the generations, when the Bible talks about generations, it's talking about the people of faith who are alive at a certain time, and, and they're all of us. God wants to use us in this process. And the things that we're talking about that have been drawn from the research, it applies to every single one of us. And we all have a role to play in this process. It doesn't matter if you're a builder, or a boomer, or a Gen X, or a millennial, or a Gen Z, or Gen Alpha, or something else. I think I hit them all, but maybe not. Anyway, back to the research. Of young adults who grew up in the church, and I want to make sure you hear this, of young adults who grew up in the church, this isn't about out in the world in general, this isn't a cross American culture, this is young adults who grew up in the church, 22% actively, consciously walk away from their faith. Throughout this series, we're going to call them the prodigals. 22% walk away from their faith. 
30% identify as Christians. But for one reason or another, they've, they've drifted out of church. They probably haven't been in a church in the last six months. We'll call them the nomads. They might identify as Christians, but they're not connected to a church, they're not practicing their faith, they're not developing their faith. So that's 22% prodigals, 30% of nomads. If you're keeping up with the math at home, we're over half, over half of young adults who grow up in the church, who are not actively connected to a church today. Next, we've got 38% who go to church at least once a month, but their values, their beliefs look more like the the surrounding culture around us than it does a culture that's defined by scripture or by the church, what we've always believed. 38%, we'll call them churchgoers in this series, and that means we're now up to 90%. 90% of young adults whose faith whose lives don't really reflect the faith that they've been raised up in. Which means that only 10% of young people who grew up in the church are what we're gonna call resilient disciples. They attend church regularly. They trust in the Bible. They're committed to Christ. And they have a desire to see the world transformed because of their faith in what Jesus can do. Only 10% look like Daniel and his friends. So the question for us again is, just like it was with Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, what is different about them? What's different about that 10%? What values or practices do they have in common? What can we learn from them? so that we can develop followers of Jesus who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and live a vibrant life in the spirit. We're gonna look at those things in the coming weeks, over the next five weeks, actually. But the question that sits before us this morning, before we ever get to those five lessons that we're gonna get to in the coming weeks, question is, how are we going to respond to our lives in exile? I think there are three basic responses we could have. We could complain that things aren't like they used to be. We could look around and say, oh, back in my day, we used to fill in the fill in the dots. Back in my day, everybody was part of a church. Back in my day, we used to shut down everything so that people could go to church. We can complain that things aren't like they used to be. Or we could choose to despair over the way that things currently are. Well, these days, kids don't fill in the blank. These days, nobody takes time to go to church. Nobody makes church a priority these days. We can complain that things aren't like they used to be. We could despair over the way things are. The third option, the one I want to commend to you this morning, is that we can get busy building resilient faith in our own lives that can be passed on to the generations that are coming behind us. 
We have an opportunity as we continue to emerge from the pandemic and we navigate the separation that our denomination is going through. We have an opportunity to evaluate where we've been where we are and where we're going and the things that we're giving our time, our resources, and our energy to. Are they the things that are building resilient disciples? Are the things that I'm giving my personal time and energy and resources to the things that build resilient faith in me and in others? Are the things that we're giving our church's time to and energy and resources the things that build this kind of resilient disciple. I think it's pretty clear that the COVID-19 outbreak wasn't just an interruption to life where we're going to go back to what was normal pre-COVID. It's been a disruption to our lives and we're never going to go back to what was pre-COVID. We're moving into something new and I think that's an opportunity for us as a church. You see, God allowed the people of Judah to go into exile for a purpose. His goal was never to send his people into exile and abandon them there. His goal was to turn the hearts of the people back to him, to get their attention, to point out the futility of the idols that they had been worshiping in God's place, to show them that he had plans to give them a future and a hope. So brothers and sisters, if we live in exile, What are you gonna do with this opportunity? Will you take time to let God speak to you about things in your life, the priorities of your life, the way you spend your time and energy and resources? Are we going to be just like the average American who gives 22 times more attention to our screens than we do to the things that God wants to use to shape our spiritual lives? Will you let God speak about the things that our church is doing? Are the meetings we have, the activities we produce, the programs we run, the Sunday morning services, are they set up in a way that they're building resilient faith in our lives and in the generations that are coming up behind us? Are the things we're doing, even the good things we're doing, Are they contributing to developing that kind of resilient faith in our lives, but taking our attention away from the things that God has for us that are the best? There's an old saying that the the enemy of the best isn't the worst, it's the good. So what are those good things in our families? What are those good things in our church that we need to just tweak and adjust so that we can be doing and investing ourselves in the best things that God has to develop resilient faith in our lives. At the end of The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy woke up and found out she had been in a dream. She was back in Kansas. She was back on the farm with Auntie M. And as we're coming out of all the restrictions that went along with COVID, as we're navigating the current realities, I don't think any of us are going to have the luxury of waking up and realizing it's all been a dream. The new reality that's emerging in the world around us isn't suddenly going to look like Jerusalem again. I think we're finding even before all of this is is fully resolved, we're still in exile. We're still living in this post-Christian Western culture. 
maybe even more than we were before COVID. But I also believe that God is looking to raise up a remnant of resilient disciples and he has plans to give us a future and a hope. So how are we gonna respond to exile? I, for one, I wanna be busy building resilient faith that can be passed on to others. I've only got so much time and energy to give and I want to use whatever I have to develop followers of Jesus who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. If the statistics are true, I don't think it's good enough for half of one of my four sons to be raised to grow up with a resilient faith. I'm not willing to watch 36 other kids in our church walk away from their faith for a whole variety of reasons, but to walk away from their faith so that my kids, my four boys, can be the 10% who are raised with resilient faith. We've got to do better, church. And it's not just Jeremy's job, and it's not just Pat's job, it's all of our jobs. We've got to do better, and it starts with us. We've got to develop that kind of resilient faith that God is calling us to so that we can pass it on to the next generation.